Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Um, trust that your day has been going well, and, and what a joy it is to hear the ongoing noise of the kids having fun out there. Um, got a chance to see a couple, of, well, not got a chance to see, I ran into um, our teenagers. They're just out and about having fun with their newfound friends. So praise God for all that he is doing. Um, like I told you, uh, I'm just going to be uh, sharing from what God has been um, teaching me personally. And I want to invite you to meet me in John, John chapter 8, John chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. And as you're turning there, I do want to highlight uh, a, little, a little notation as you turn to John chapter 8. Some translations have um, a little notation that says the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, verse 53, uh, to chapter 8, verse 11. And so uh, what, what do we do here? Well, number one, I'm going to preach it. And, and number two, I'm going to give you reasons why we can still trust this story. Amen? Let me give you three reasons why before we dive into this powerful, powerful story. Um, everything in this story that we're about to go through is consistent with the character of Jesus. So as we go through this, it's like, it's, you're not going to look at it and be like, oh, that's, that's odd. That's weird. No, if you study the life of Christ, you'll see that everything is consistent to the character of Jesus. Also, this story is consistent theologically through the patterns in Scripture. So as you see theological things in this story, you'll realize that it's consistent uh, to the whole of Scripture. And also, it's consistent to the writer of John. You know, John... Uh, typically, when you read the Gospel of John, the, he, he gives a story and then he shares a teaching. So when you read through the Gospel of John, you'll see this pattern, a story, a teaching, a story, a teaching. And that's actually what's happening. We're only going to look at a story today, a moving story, a powerful story. And in fact, when, you, um, when we encounter stories in the Bible, it's not meant for it to be transactional. It's meant for us to feel. Um, most of the Bible is in story form. Because God, God loves stories. And why do we watch a good movie? Because we love stories. And so this story is very moving. So John chapter 8, verse 1 through 11. Several years ago, um, I became a pastor of a church, first church I pastored in the south suburbs of Chicago, uh, fresh out of youth ministry on the south side of Chicago, and going from inner city ministry to now senior pastor. Uh, and I got to tell you, it was baptism by fire um, in Jesus' name. And I remember... <laughs> The first week there, I got a call by uh, a pastor mentor of mine, and praise God for him. He called to encourage me. I was, you know, nervous and excited at the same time. And he, he said a line to me I'll never forget. He said, Brendan, ministry is messy because we are messy. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> ministry is messy. Uh, church work is messy. Dealing with people is messy. It's not a cool walk in the cool of the day. It's, it's hard work. It's spiritual warfare. It's, it's messy. Somebody say messy. It's, it's, it's just messy. And we all know that we live in a messy culture. We live in a messy world. You turn on the news long enough and you see, man, we are in a mess. Hello, 2020. A mess. We moved within... Three weeks before the world shut down, from Nashville all the way to Vegas, kids was in school for about three weeks, and then all of a sudden, you know, the pandemic hits, and you all know what else happened, you know, the injustices and the protests. I mean, it's just a mess. We know about messy situations. We know about messy relationships. We know about messy diapers. Yeah. 
Hello, parents. This story we're about to dive into is an extreme mess. And we're not going to try to clean it up. It's a horrific, but yet beautiful mess. Yes, you heard me say that. It's horrific, it's embarrassing, but it's a beautiful mess. And a question I want to raise this evening is this. What do we learn about Jesus when he's faced with a messy situation? What do we learn about our Lord when he's faced with a messy situation? You ask great questions at 7.26 p.m. What do we learn about Jesus when he's faced with a messy situation? Well, we're taken into the tail end of a festival, a feast. Thank you. The Feast of Tabernacles. It is a feast where the Jews would remember God's protection and his provision. The tail end, so I want you to feel this. Uh, it's a lot of people still around. And as was his custom, Jesus goes to the temple to teach. And we know in John chapter 8, verse 20, he's in the treasury. And right around the treasury is the court of women, which is very important. Jesus, the living word, is sitting down teaching the word. Can you imagine what it will be like to sit in front of the greatest preacher that ever lived? Can you imagine what it would have been like to listen to the word coming from the living word? God in flesh dwelt among us. As John would say that we have seen and beheld his glory. Here he is. He's ministering the word, teaching the word and Everybody's is hanging on his every word. People are locked in. People are zoomed in right there within the court of women. And while he's teaching the infamous religious leaders come with gifts. They interrupt Jesus and they bring a woman. Not just any woman, but a woman caught in the very act of adultery. And what makes this scene more powerful is that they, 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 didn't, they didn't say, hey, Jesus, can I talk to you for a second? Can you come here, please? No. They placed this woman in the midst of Jesus, in the midst of everyone. Can you imagine how awkward this scene is? He's teaching, but now there's an interruption. But there are a few problems here. Number one, it takes two to commit adultery. Where's the brother? Where he at? It takes two. But these religious leaders who spent all their life studying the word of God, pomp and circumstance, look at me, look at my righteousness, they pick and choose what they want to do. And so problem number one, they don't bring the brother, they bring this woman. Chauvinistic guys. Then on top of that, they don't care about Jesus and they only care about trapping the living word, Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how embarrassed this woman must have felt? Can you imagine the shame she must be experiencing? Can you imagine the vulnerability can you imagine okay, taking in the scene, the families and people that are gathered wondering, what have we 
got ourselves into what is going on. And right in the midst of this awkwardness, we come to verse (laughs) 4. These religious leaders say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. The law requires both parties who are guilty of adultery to be stoned, but these dudes have no desire to rightly apply God's truth. They're just singling out this woman in this messy situation. But nevertheless, they present Jesus with a catch-22 because if Jesus agrees with the stoning, he would be in trouble with Rome because execution belonged to their jurisdiction. But if he doesn't agree, he's going to be in trouble or his credibility is going to be coming to question as it relates to the scripture. So what do you do? What's to be done? How will Jesus handle this messy situation? One of the things that terribly concerns me today in the Western world, watered down Christianity, is our self-righteousness. We are so quick to condemn people. We're so quick to pick up a rock to stone people with our words. I was a youth pastor in Chicago. That's where I met my wife. No, she wasn't in my youth group. (laughs) But I remember there was a young lady in our youth group that got pregnant. She grew up at the church. And out of shame, she kind of stayed away from the church, but she mustered up some courage After about five, six months of pregnancy, and obviously she's showing, she walks into the lobby, and in front of everyone, you had some of the greeters and some of the ushers look at her and say, what is this? What is this? And with my own eyes, I saw this woman make a U-turn, leave the church, and never step foot back in the church again. We have a problem with self-righteousness. And you all hear me when I say this. We all are one step away from stupid. Don't you say what you'll never do. We all have a tremendous capacity to break the very heart of God. We all are one decision away from throwing it all away. And we all struggle with self-righteousness. We may not externally say it, but inwardly we'll say, oh, I'll never do that. Oh, I couldn't do that. Oh, really? Oh, really? But yet I'm reminded of Matthew 7, verse 3, which says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log, translation, you know, redwood trees, sequoia trees, that is in your own eye? Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, in any transgression, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, we have a problem. We all have a problem with self-righteousness, and we must repent, and we must be careful in how we treat people. If it was your son or your daughter, you would want them to be treated with dignity. Oh, how we need the desperate grace of God. 
But these religious guys don't care about her. These guys who study the scriptures all their life, they got the degrees, they got the, they got the outfits, they got the, the positions and the prestige. They don't care about this woman. They don't care about Jesus. So they present Jesus with his catch-22. <laughs> but I love it because Jesus responds, but our Lord doesn't respond the way we would think. His response in the latter part of verse 6 was, Jesus, watch this, bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Whenever you study scripture, read it slowly, thoughtfully, and do not water ski through the text. A lot of scholars will, will try to highlight, you know, uh, he wrote this, he wrote that, he wrote this, he wrote that. Ah, oh, nonsense. We don't know because the Bible don't say. But what it symbolizes is profoundly powerful. In Exodus 31, we learned that the Ten Commandments was written by the finger of God. In Luke chapter 11, verse 20, it says that by the finger of God, Jesus cast out demons. So the fact that Jesus' first response was to write with his finger on the ground is a reminder to the guys who are experts in the law. You might be students of the law, but I am the author of the law. You might be quoting some scripture, but I'm the author of scripture. I'm the author of life. And another reason why he wrote on the ground is to also illustrate, hey, hey, hold on now. You came from the ground, guys. We're weak. We're fragile. We're one step away from throwing it all away. You're coming here with this arrogance. And this finger symbolizes the power of God. And it symbolizes to us that we are the ones that are vulnerable and weak. And so they're pressing Jesus. <laughs> they kept questioning him, kept questioning him, kept pushing the issue, pushing the issue. And Jesus has enough. He stands up not just because he was riding with his finger on the ground. He stands up to set the record straight. Notice in verse 7. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now measure those words. He's not speaking about moral perfection. Oh, what do you mean, Pastor? It says right there in the text, let him who is without sin. No, 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 no. Because if that's the case, anybody in any position of authority has no right to rule. What's the point of leaders today then? What's the point of pastors? What's the point of, you know, uh, Christian leaders? What's the point? He's not talking about perfection. He's talking about moral consistency. There's a difference. Because only he's perfect. So what he's really saying is, okay, guys, all right, okay, which one of you is morally qualified to judge her? If you're, if you're coming to me with a pure motive, wanting to honor God, and you're coming to me rightly, rightly applying God's truth, be the first one to throw one at her. Go ahead, go ahead. Pick up a rock and kill her. Whoa. Talk about drop the bomb. But our Lord, after he drops the bomb, he goes back down on the ground and starts riding with his finger on the ground. 
you do realize Moses <laughs> destroyed the first set of tablets because he was frustrated by the people of Israel and their disobedience. He destroys the first tablet, but as an act of grace, God wrote with his finger again the tablets, as if to say in the text, grace is standing before you, but you refuse to give it because you refuse to see it. And there it is. As he's riding with his finger on the ground. Mm. Verse 9, it says, but when they heard it, they went away one by one. Notice this expression here, beginning with the older ones. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but why start with the older ones to depart? Could it be? Could it, could it just be? The longer you live life, you, you look back over your life, you can, see, you can see the profound brokenness and stupidity that you have created yourself. When you're young, you got the world before you. Yeah, you know you're a sinner, but man, when you, when you live life, you can look over and say, man, I'm, I'm a hot mess. Second chance? Are you kidding me? I blew my second chance up a long time ago. I'm on 5,632 chance. <laughs> These men came ready to condemn this woman, but they ended up condemning themselves. In the beginning with the older ones, they dropped the rock. The commotion now begins to settle. The scene now shifts. What was once chaotic now settles in, and I love this, the scene now focuses in on this guilty woman, yes, she is guilty, and this holy savior, yes, he is holy. This messy situation now comes to a climax where you don't have extra voices, all you have is the living word and a guilty, broken woman. I love it. Because isn't that what it comes down to for all of us, one-on-one -on -one with Jesus? Your spouse can't get you into heaven. I can't lean on my grandmama's faith to get me into heaven. It is appointed unto man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Every last one of us must face him face-to-face, one-on-one with Jesus. And let me just tell you now, it's better to bow the knee now. Then to bow down later and be cast away into eternal separation from him because you refused to believe him when you had breath in your body called time and in history. So here you have this moment, this woman, and Jesus in verse 10. I love it. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now, don't you love the questions? I mean, obviously he knows the answer. He's not trying to figure it out. When God asks questions, it's not for him to find more information. He's, uh, he's, he, he's all knowing. So it's not for that. No, no, no. The issue is for her to take in the moment. Sister, where are they? I know they grabbed you. <laughs> By the way, what was they doing? Let's hold another conversation for another day. They grabbed you. They, they dragged you here. You thought your life was over. Where are they? Where are they? 
Where, 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 where are your condemners? Notice he doesn't ask her details of what she did. He knows it. He doesn't ask her if she's guilty. They both know it. No, he wants her to take in the moment, take in the moment, take in the moment. Is there anyone here to condemn you? And I can see her trying to cover herself with tears streaming down her face. And she says, no one, Lord. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here's the bombshell of a statement. No other false prophet and no other religion can make this declaration. And you hear me. I'm not saying this because it's me. I'm saying it because the text says it. And we don't apologize for biblical truth. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Leave your life of sin. Now, this is, this is amazing. This is amazing to me. The one who has ultimate authority. The one who fashioned this woman in her mother's womb. The one who has the authority to cast her away does not condemn her. Notice in the text, Jesus extends grace before commanding her to live right. It's no wonder why the Bible says in John chapter 1 that he's full of grace and truth. You see, all truth with no grace is brutality, and all grace with no truth is hypocrisy. And our problem today in our Western world, especially in the church today, is that we're quick to be legalistic and tell people how to live, but give them no grace. I'm so glad God doesn't treat us the way we treat people. No. He gives her grace. But then he also says, now, don't you ever do that again. See, he calls her to live a life of grace, grace, a life motivated by grace, grace to be holy, grace to be obedient. Dr. Tony Evans, one of my favorite preachers, says this about this particular scene. He says, when we truly understand God's amazing grace, we do not go out and merely sin less. We go out and seek to sin no more. So the question I want to ask again, but as I proposed earlier, what do we learn about Jesus when he's faced with a messy situation? Here's what we learn. Here's the moral of the story. Here's, here's my message in a sentence. Again, remember, I don't want you walking away thinking, what was that? Here's my message in a sentence. Even though, let's personalize this, even though I... Stand guilty before Jesus. He alone has the authority to release me. Even though I, even though we, because you, you, do, you do know that we all stand guilty before Jesus. He alone has the authority to release me. In other words, he meets me in my mess, but won't leave me in my mess. He meets me where I am. But he won't leave me as I am. See, the world defines love as agreement. No, no, that's not Bible. That's not Bible. That's not Bible. God's love is not a pampering love. His love is a perfecting love. Yeah, I'll meet you where you are, but I'm going to move you over to holiness. 
I'm going to move you over to myself. I'm going to chisel away things that don't look like me because I love you too much to leave you there. So he meets me in my mess, yes, but he's not going to leave me in my mess. So I want to seek to answer a question then. Why in the world is Jesus the key to my release? Why is he the key to my deliverance? Why is he the key to my release? Well, let me give you three answers. Obviously, there could be more, but let me give you three, three biggies. One reason why Jesus is the key to my release is because no one else qualifies. Did you hear what I said? No one else qualifies. No one. All world religions outside of Christianity is performance-based. And I want to ask, at what point do you realize and you recognize and you know, without a shadow of a doubt, that you've reached the requirements? Please tell me. Please tell me. Jesus is the only one that everything that he said has happened. He was dead, he was buried, and he rose again. By the way, nobody killed him. He laid down his life. And he took it up on a third day. For I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, no one else qualifies. Only Jesus qualifies. And if you have an open heart and a willing mind, you'll see the beauty of Christ. And the reason why Jesus is key to my release, because no one else qualifies, which gives me great freedom and great confidence because there's not a person in my life or a demon in hell that has the authority to put a period over my life. Only Jesus gets the last word. Only Jesus gets the last word. So the reason why Jesus is key to my release, because no one else qualifies. Number two, because my sin is too expensive. You hear me today? My sin is too expensive. This is why, you know, let me, this is why there's no such thing as a good person. Did you hear what I said? There's not a good person in this room. No one's good. Only God is good. I think thoughts I shouldn't think. I say things I shouldn't say. My heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Sin numbs me. It creates this distance. This is why I like to ask people, then what's the solution to our sin problem? Try harder, do better? Really? Do you have peace? Are you restless? See, the reason why Jesus is key to our release is because my sin is too expensive. It's too expensive. And maybe there's someone here today and you feel weighed down. You've tried every method. You've tried every resources. You've looked here. You've looked there. And you still are restless and have no peace. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you right now, it's too costly. 
And the reason why Jesus is key to my release is because no one else qualifies. Because my sin is too expensive. <laughs> and number three, because he alone pays the bill. He pays the bill. Now, it's interesting to me. It's interesting to me. You think about this. He's not dismissive of this woman's sin because many days later, he made payment for her sin. He took on her sin. And he took on the sin of the religious leaders. Can you imagine? We, we, don't, we don't fully grasp this. Our sins, past, present, and future, placed on our Lord. It's no wonder why Isaiah would say it, 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 it pleased the Lord to crush him. Jesus experienced hell on the cross. Elahi, Elahi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That moment was the only moment in all of eternity where he experienced a brokenness distance from God. Why? Because he was making payment for you and for me. And he was thinking about you and he was thinking about me. And he would not come down from that tree until he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And the reason why Jesus is key to our release, he didn't, this, this is the amazing thing, he didn't have to do this. But before time began, he said, I'll go. I'll step into a human flesh. I'll live the perfect life. I'll show people the way and I will die in their place so that they won't experience the reality of eternal separation from you. So I'm willing to take the blow for Brendan Crawford or Ritz. I'm willing to take the blow for, put your name right there. He alone pays the bill. You think Muhammad pays the bill? He's dead, but my Savior's at the right hand of the Father. So he pays the bill. No one else qualifies. My sin is too expensive. Does anybody need to be released today? Does anybody need to experience what it really means to be forgiven? Does anybody want to experience those precious words? Neither do I condemn you. But from now on, go and sin no more. Maybe you are already a believer, but hey, we've all have been in seasons of what I like to call of stupidity. And we all need to be reminded that the grace of Jesus is here. And that even though I stand guilty, we stand guilty before him, he alone has the authority to release me. I can't explain it. I can't describe it. But there's this joy when you experience Christ. There's this peace that's supernatural. There's this stillness. There's this movement. There's this, there's this, there's this, there's this presence that we got to acknowledge. And if I be lifted up, he said, I never forget, several years ago, while we were still living in the Chicagoland area, I was speaking at a camp, and it was a room kind of like this. 
You know, this is in the Midwest in the summertime, and it was hot. And their AC had went out. <laughs> Still got to keep preaching. And I never forget, never forget, we had a powerful moment of prayer. And literally, the windows were up, you know, trying to get some circulation. There was no circulation. I'm like, Lord, please, I'm dying up here in the pulpit. After the service, we got into a time of prayer, and as we began to pray, there was a mighty rush of wind that just kept going around the building, and you felt this strong breeze and this push and push as the prayers went, and as soon as the prayers got done, after about 10 minutes, the wind stopped, and there was a holy hush in the place. I'm not telling you what I heard. I was there. The skeptics will say, well, you know, that was just probably because, you know, the heat and the cold air and the, you know, whatever, just mixing. No, 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 that was God. That was God. And you hear me today. God wants to blow in your life. He wants to give you wind in your sails. He wants to give you grace. He wants to give you the peace. He wants to, he wants to set us free. Well, that's why he came. But we must see with the eyes of faith. The world says seeing is believing. That's horrible theology for the Christian. No, for the Christian, it's believing, then I will see. And when we believe in him, we will see him do great things. And so, Father, I pray right now that you will open up our eyes to the beauty of Jesus. Yes, this was a messy situation. Yes, it was. But it was also beautiful because you set everything straight. You shut up the critics. And with tenderness and compassion and love and with truth, you loved on this woman, but yet you commanded her to live right. Why? Because you have the authority. No one else in human history can do that. We worship you, Lord. And Lord, I pray today that our hearts will be filled with the joy of the Lord. Filled with the reality that there's nothing in my life that doesn't happen to me unless it first passes through your hands and you allow it. And even in that, Lord, you have a way of utilizing the circumstances of life to draw us to yourself for your great glory. And it's all because of your grace. So, Lord, I pray for us today that we will marvel, we will marvel, as Paul would say, at the supremacy of Jesus. That he's above all things. And in him all things hold together. So, Lord, we behold your glory today. Thank you for this time. And may we marinate in your love and your truth and your grace today. Neither do I condemn you. But from now on, leave your life of sin. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for that. And Lord, may we be compelled to worship you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.